as we made this move uh, uh, to our new facility, we looked at my library in my cramped office and said, this is just isn't going to do. So every book before it got packed, it got, we got pretty much decided if we were going to keep it or not. There's not a lot of call anymore for books on family and parenting from 1973. And, uh, and yet as I read them, they're still very, very good, but you're not going to pick them up. Uh, it's not that parenting has changed so much, but uh, you want more current authors. However, occasionally you come across a certain one where you go, man, this, this is really not just good about parenting, but it helps me laugh about some of the tragedies I've had as a dad. And, uh, and so I, I want to read a section for you because this one, as I read through it, you might say, that's a keeper, and then I'll read some more about it. But uh, page 91 of this book, it says this uh, on parenting. Let me repeat, nothing is harder for a parent than getting your kids to do the right thing. There is such a rich variety of ways for you to fail at it by using threats. By using bribery, by using reason, by using example, by using blackmail, or by using pleas for mercy. Walk into any airport terminal in America today and you will see men on chairs pointedly staring into space with the looks of generals who have just surrendered. They are the fathers who have run out of ways to get their children to do the right thing. Isn't that great? Written in 1986. The book is called Fatherhood. The author is Bill Cosby. I thought I'd get that rise from you. And when I say that, I realize that now that some of you know it, say, Jim, take that book and throw it away. Bill Cosby has been accused of um, abusing women by giving them drugs when he's on the road so that he can have sex with them. And uh, these are not just any women. These are famous top models of the day. And now the truth is coming out. And the more that he tries to hide it, it seems like the more it comes out one after another after another. And now even though it was probably illegal, a deposition where he even admitted it to at least once. <sighs> How his star has burnt out. And over the last several years, we keep hearing more and more about it. Therefore, we ask, is justice finally being served on this man who made millions of dollars with a um, a family show that everybody watched and yet had such a checkered and abusive past? Is justice being served? And many of us are saying, well, we, we certainly hope so. We say it's about time that the truth caught up with him. It's about time that now he is getting what he really deserves. That the media and the culture are demanding justice for new ways to expose him. And man, are they searching. The truth is finally coming out about Bill Cosby. Now let me change the subject just a little bit. If now he is getting justice for what he deserved probably 40 years ago. What about somebody who is punished unjustly and never gets justice? What about somebody who pays for a crime that she did not commit? We might ask, where is God when someone suffers unjustly? Where is God when the accused is obviously innocent but no one wants to help? 
Where is God when someone who's been set up by others so that the blame could be shifted to this person? If God is just, then unjust suffering, don't we say, should not exist. And so we come to this conclusion that an absence of justice means that God is not present or God does not exist. Or worse yet, God is indifferent to our situation. And so we're in a study these weeks all throughout the summer where we're looking at God's intentions overriding man's intentions. When it seems that God is not present, we understand that we are facing a test that is designed to shape the person that others can trust. And oh, yet the cost of it and the indignity of it and the fact that it should never have existed. So we're looking at Joseph. And we're looking at the intentions, both divine and, uh, and otherwise, uh, of Joseph's life. And those who have, um, who have misused him, as well as God, who is trying to shape him. And guess who wins? Every time. Guess who wins? So, we left Joseph last week as one who had been sold rather than killed by his brothers. That he's uh, taken up by traitors to be bought as a slave. And he's bought by a powerful Egyptian official named Potiphar. And Potiphar is close to Pharaoh himself, sort of captain of the guard. And yet in this condition as a slave, Joseph applies himself. Rather than despairs of his situation. And by applying himself and using all the talents that are God-given within him. He finds that he is promoted consistently until he is managing the entire estate of the official. So one thing, uh, one other thing about Joseph, though, that we probably need to be aware of, and that is that he's a hunk and a hottie. And as a young man, it says this about him. Now, Joseph was well built and handsome. I know it's hard for some of us to. To really accept that, you know, and we all go, oh, no, no, I'm just a regular guy, you know. (laughs) But Joseph was hot. He was desirable. And unfortunately, what comes up of this is he was desirable by a a a cougar by the name of Mrs. Potiphar. We never know her first name. It's probably a good thing. So... um, He is a very good-looking and desirable man, and Potiphar's wife notices. More than notice, she wants him as her boy toy for sex. And so it says in in Genesis 39, 7, After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. She propositions him. Wow! A slave boy becomes the owner's wife's lover. When you think of that situation, I went to public high school in a different millennium. (laughs) But I am alive today and alive today knowing human nature does not change that much. So men, as you think of your days in high school, if this situation came up, what would be the response of your friends? Now, some of you have high integrity, and you'd say, well, that that would never happen because I'd never tell anybody. You weren't one of my friends. You need to know that if this ever happened to one of my friends, he would be speaking about it all week long, and everybody would be coming to him to the point where this guy would be more popular than the starting quarterback on the varsity football team. 
Everyone would want to know who was it, how'd it go, what was it like. He would have celebrity status in the school. And most of my friends would think, this guy has won the lottery, man. The most famous movie of my day as a college student was a, a movie called The Graduate. And men my age can talk you through, hello, Mrs. Robinson, that great song by uh, whoever it was, okay. Uh, I, would, I had the name and then ding, it lost it like so many other things in my mind right now. Um, and they can take you through the whole plot. Mrs. Robinson was Mrs. Potiphar, simple as that. The two had the same idea. And so we can take you through that because these things don't happen to most of us, but it happens to some. And many of my friends would see this as the opportunity of the short life that they had been living to this point. Why would any red-blooded young male guy say no? Well, there's several reasons to say no. There are many reasons to say no. But I want to leave you with three. The first good reason to say no is maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you can repeat the Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment is you shall not commit adultery. Okay. I, you know, some of those are really long and I can't memorize them, you know, word by word, but you shall not commit adultery. I could remember that. That means if one of the partners is married, you shall not be involved in a sexual relationship with that person. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, there's only one problem. The Ten Commandments were coming 450 years later than Joseph. And you need to know that in cultures then, like cultures now, um, both modern and ancient, that marriage was not always considered a sacred thing. Marriage was often considered a status thing. And, and, and that among the very rich... If you were married, you married so you would get ahead by the alliance you made between families. And what does love has to have to do with it? Was not much. It was not a major motivation. So Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar mar- probably married because they had gotten into a relationship from their parents. And this would help both of these lines continue to exist and they would live a better life because of the fact that they married. Aren't we glad that never happens today? Aren't we glad that we only marry for love today? Yeah, right. So, um, they remain married, but there's no indication that they remain faithful to each other. But I can tell you one person who does know if they were faithful to each other. It was the head of the estate, the CEO of all the uh, goods of Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. It was Joseph. And he knows what's going on behind closed doors. So this... Uh, uh, proposition is made to Joseph and he has to make a response. And as a red-blooded male, you'd think he would say yes, but it says no. Joseph refused. Now, I think all of us know, you know, there's something more than just a moral code uh, that is written down that says we shouldn't have sexual relationships with another man's wife or another man's husband. We, we should say that's off bounds. Uh, it's just not going to happen. But Joseph doesn't say that as he explains to Mrs. Potiphar why he's not going to do it. Uh, Joseph refuses, and he says no, not because of certain morality, which is true, but also because of certain responsibility. I read verse 8 and 9 here. 
But he refused, it says in verse 8. And then he says, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So the next two, you see Joseph saying, is his reason is he explains to Mrs. Potiphar why he's not going to go through with this. More than, more than what is morality, he says, I have certain responsibilities. I have a very cherished relationship with your husband. How could I do this and look him in the eye? One of the great authors, you know, if you would go through my bookshelves, you would see this guy comes up time and time again because he speaks to me about the love of God. And a question that he asked in this situation that he was told to ask himself when he is tempted sexually is, what lives would you affect by sexual immorality? And he says, certainly every cherished relationship I have uh, in my, my, my family, my wife, my children, you know, my, my spouse may forgive me, but the relationship would never be the same. My children would never be the same when they are alone with me. And, and that others who would respect me or whose uh, respect I desire, that relationship would never be the same. And then he goes, because he's a, a, a famous author, he goes, everyone who's read my books, everyone who has heard my messages online, everyone who has visited my church and heard me preach, every one of those relationships would be affected negatively. And they would be asking, can I trust any Christian as a moral example? That's helped him say no. And I must admit that would help just about anybody you see, Joseph only really has two relationships because he's, he's pretty much alone in life. Only two relationships that he doesn't want to damage. The first is his boss, Potiphar, who for the last several years continues to promote him uh, out of earned trust in him. He does not want to let Potiphar down, even though the culture that he's in has many others doing it. And that's just not the culture now, but even then. Uh, Maybe you have not seen this lady in, when, when she was much younger, but the actress Shirley MacLaine was once doing an interview where the uh, a very embarrassing uh, question came up about, you have had so many men in your life in public relationships. How do you deal with that? And she got very scientific, which is not like Shirley MacLaine. Um, and she says, well, you know, studies have been done that say about one-third of people uh, are in continuous monogamous uh, relationships. About another third of the people are what we call serial monogamous, only one at a time. And then, um, and then, and then there's the rest of Hollywood, which is just promiscuous. Anyone, anytime, doesn't matter. And she says, "I'm a serial monogamist." How do you explain it? Well, I'm not bad as as bad as the other people. I'm in the middle. I'm good. I'm corrupt, but I'm good. And that's how our culture deals with it. And I imagine that that is what, you know, Mrs. Potiphar is thinking. And I imagine that, you know, he might say as he's looking at his culture, yeah, it'll be hard to be around Potiphar, but hey, it's even worse than the rest of the world. 
he has a third and final reason. Listen to this. I've read it. Now hear it one more time. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You see, it's not that Mrs. Potiphar is old and not desirable. It's that he has a relationship with God that we don't know much about in this story yet. But he has a relationship with God. And he would say, just as my doing this act with you would uh, very negatively affect the one who put his trust in me and in, in your husband, it would also be a sin against God. I'm not hearing that a lot in our culture today. I'm hearing, well, you know, there are certain standard rules that we have. But very rarely do you hear the public talking about a sin against God. Think about that. We'll come back to that. Because the rest of the story you know, takes Potiphar from a very tempting situation to handling it well to then being punished for doing the right thing. So Mrs. Potiphar does not like being turned down by anyone, especially by her slave. Her stature in society means that no one turns her down, certainly not Joseph. So to avoid shattering the trust that his master has given him and to keep a right relationship with God, Joseph says no the first time. And then it goes on to say, and Joseph has to say no almost daily. And then it says that Joseph finds ways to manage his schedule so that wherever Mrs. Potiphar is, he is not. He's in different parts of the estate. He is actively and aggressively trying to stay away from her. And it is working until probably just a few weeks later. She catches him alone once. He turns her down. He figures the best thing to do is to run away. And as he's running away, she grabs his coat. You know that's the second time Potiphar's lost his coat? I mean... uh, Joseph has lost his coat. Second time. Moral of the story? Stop wearing coats. <laughs> well, not really. But it's the second time. So she grabs a coat and he runs away. And she holds onto the coat. And she has the coat in her hand. God has the dignity and integrity of Joseph in his hand. But Mrs. Potiphar yells, rape! And she keeps yelling it. So everyone in the household comes. And finally, you know, it's one of those, well, wait till Potiphar gets home. Potiphar does get home. And uh, it's an amazing uh, set of events that's going on here. So let me just read it. See, the first time uh, that that, uh, she is alone without Potiphar and holding the coat, she goes, "This, this, this slave is making sport of us, meaning of all Egyptians. He's only good enough to be a slave, and he's toying with us. He's taking advantage of us. He's looking He's looking at how he can destroy our whole culture through his actions, essentially. That the rules of Egypt don't apply to Joseph. Then Potiphar gets home. These words should sound familiar, like Genesis 3. She looks at her husband and says... That Hebrew slave you brought us came to make sport of me or to mock me is what it means. But as soon as I screamed help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. 
If it sounds familiar, that's what Adam tried to say. This woman that you made for me, okay, Genesis chapter 3. It's, it's a very common one. Adam made it up, and we just continue to use it. It's not our fault. It's not our fault. It's not our fault. It's not our fault. And Mrs. Potiphar says, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You brought him here. So if you look at her lie, it revolves around a Hebrew slave mocking all Egyptians, but also face-to-face to her hubby, Mr. Potiphar. She says, um, Joseph is mocking me by toying with me, and it's your fault. So what do you do in that sort of a situation? Uh, I, I think he could have killed him. I don't know. We don't know what was going on Potiphar's mind. It says he was in a rage to hear this from his wife, so he trusted her story. But it says, Genesis 39, 20, Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were all confined. So enraged, he throws him into prison. And at this point, you know, we might be shaking our fist and demanding justice for Joseph. He's an innocent soul. We might ask, where is God protecting his people? And you might conclude that God is absent. Or, if, you know, if, if God's not there, then why do I have to be moral? If you get punished for doing the right thing, why should I do the right thing? It's enough to make you agnostic. Yet four times in the life of Joseph, when he's working for Potiphar, we realize that God is at work and involved. It says simply this four times in different manners, but it's always down to these words. The Lord was with Joseph. Second time, the Lord was with Joseph. Third time, the Lord was with Joseph. Fourth time, the Lord was with Joseph and caused him to prosper and caused uh, his stature to rise in front of his in front of his owner. The Lord is with Joseph and, and and Potiphar becomes rich because Joseph is such a good manager. The Lord did not desert Joseph. The Lord is still with Joseph, and in this experience, he's causing him to gain stature, trustworthiness. God is present. And I, I, I know that there's about, there's hair on some of your necks about ready to rise and curl when I'm going to say this. But in these situations, I can't say it's true for every situation, but in these situations, Joseph is being tested by God. Simple as that. And he gets an A. He gets an A. But just because he gets an A does not mean life goes well. You got that? Just because you pass the test does not mean you get instant rewards. We all know from you know all of our experiences, life just isn't that way. So it comes at a great cost in the short term. So this is our third message about the life of Joseph. We're talking about transformational growth. How does it happen? And we say some of it is through our activities and experiences. As we are tracking what God is doing in our lives, that's one of our core values, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. We also say that, you know, through experiences, we we, we find ourselves choosing God on a day-by-day basis in those activities that we choose. 
So let's catch up. The first thing, you know, what, what could be God's intentions through this whole situation? First, being sold by his brothers and being, uh, instead of being killed, but then uh, finding himself a slave. And one of the things was that we learn obedience through the experiences that we uh, go through. And just like Jesus learns obedience, which is a, a, a study in itself, so the question is, how important to you is obedience to God versus other things? Because down at the deepest core of human frailty, we say what's most important is I don't want to get caught. No, we do. I do. I don't want to get caught. But through this, Joseph is learning obedience. Last week we talked about through situations like this, you can cling to God's character knowing that he is present, he is powerful, he is good, and he is sovereign. Things have not gotten out of hand. So the little evidence we have of God for Joseph in these moments is, is very little evidence. But Joseph is still breathing, he's still alive, and God's still working, as we see. The third thing that Joseph will have to learn if he's going to save his family in the future and save all of um, Egypt from extermination and the loss of one of the great cultures of the world. The third thing is he needs to learn to master temptation. That doesn't mean he never fails. We don't mean that. But we now have, you know, Joseph is now alone twice. His brothers get rid of him. His masters uh, throw him into prison. Uh, His master throws him into prison. Oh, let me just mention this. Um, the prison that he is thrown in was probably what we'd call minimum security prisoners because it's where all the um, the official pharaoh's staff prisoners are put. We, we'd call it today club fed. Why would he be put there as a slave? Maybe the intentions of God. So there he is, and uh, he is learning to master temptation. And on this earth, he has two cherished relationships. One has just sold him down the river. That is his master on earth, Potiphar. And though he was responsible to Potiphar, it meant nothing to Potiphar, and he throws him in jail. But he also has a cherished relationship with his master in heaven who empowers him to master this temptation. The Bible promises that God is with us when we face temptation. And I love this passage from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you will face the same temptations I do, maybe in different instances and different depths and and, and whatever, you know, but we face the same thing. Money, greed, sex, power... Status, celebrity, you know, you name it. They're they're pretty much the same. Lying, you know, all these things. We face them. So they're common to man. And then it says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide the way of escape so that you, me, might endure it. One of the ways of mastering temptation is understanding what God wants and then understanding how God wants us to work in it. 
So he's learning to master temptation through the presence and the power of God. Now, I know as I say this, I know that some people, maybe even this audience today, are chained through a a series of of addictive behaviors, and you say, this doesn't work for me. And I I get that. I understand that. And I'm please, uh, I'm not trying to provide simple answers for everything. But here is Joseph, who has choices that he can easily make. And he makes the right choice. This week, as I'm reading through the Bible in a year, I'm, I use the, the Living Bible, and I find it extremely refreshing as I do it. And I came across this verse, Ephesians 5.10, because it says, Find out what pleases the Lord. First, use your mind. Do you know what God wants, what obedience will look like? Find out what pleases the Lord. That's the first half of the sentence, comma. Second half, then do it. Wait a minute, that's just way too simple. No, that's all it says. Find out what pleases the Lord, Paul says to the Ephesians, and then do it. And I understand that by promise, God gives me the power and the will to do it. And God's answer is that in his son, Jesus Christ, I have the power and the will to do it. And I also know this about Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. So, let me ask, have you learned this great and marvelous lesson? First of all, is God with you? Is he with you? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands like I did for announcements. But deep in your soul... Can you honestly say, I believe God is with me? you got to start there. You might say, well, I'm not like Joseph. I'm not real successful and everything isn't going well with me. Is God with you by promise? And that is where you start. Because it says it time and time again. We're about ready to look at it again next week. Is God with you by promise? You start there. And if he is with you, would he, would he rather that you face temptations and say no to them or face temptations and say yes to them? That's a hard one. He, like Joseph, desires that you would face temptations and choose God. Choose that your relationship with God is something that you do not want to be damaged. And understand that if he is with you, then his promise is true that there are ways for you to handle these temptations. And for you, like Joseph, to refuse. And here's what happens. If this is really a test, and like a lot of tests that we are in, it's called a pass-fail test. Okay? Either we pass it or we fail it. It's not like you got a 73 and that gives you a C and a, you know, a 79 will give you a B minus. No, it's pass fail. You pass or you fail. That's, that's, that's life. Uh, I don't know if they still do that in college. I hear they only pass. So, um, but, but, but if so, if this is true, can I ask what are you facing these days that is the temptation? And what does it mean to pass? What does it mean to pass it? Men, this is about men. This whole passage, this whole, this whole section is to you men. 
It is an example of a man-to-man idea of what it means to have a relationship with God that shapes everything we do and allows us to see him at work in every test that we have, in every situation. And yes, do we fail? We fail. I failed recently. You, you, chances are you probably have too. And I want you to know that if you failed recently, God says, let's go at it again. Another pass, test, fail coming. But if you've passed recently, doesn't it feel great to, to say, God is honored in the way that I've lived? And more than that, what's the next thing that happens when you pass and then pass and then pass again? It's like the parable in Matthew and Luke, where God looks at the servant and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little. Now take more. Here's some more to do. It is increased usefulness to God. Is that your desire? Do you want increased usefulness to God? It's mine. Not every minute of every day, but it's mine. Listen to this. Your relationship with God, or lack of it, determines our responses to temptation when no one else is looking. You're not afraid of anybody else. Our relationship with God, or lack of it, determines our response to temptation when no one else is looking. Let's pray. Father, I can only imagine what it's like to have been living a facade and then have all sorts of people that you have heard in the past want to attack you. I can only imagine. I've been so blessed to have so many friends on this earth who uphold me and pray for me and want the best from me. But that may not be true of all of us. Some of us might feel we are innocent and under attack. Or maybe just a little bit guilty, but not worthy of the judgment that's coming upon us. Is God with you? Have you refused him instead of the temptation? The next test, which you can pass this time, might be today. Jesus left us with a prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. We're going to pray through it. There is that phrase that says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then it goes, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we get to finish that part about deliver us from evil, let's just stop the prayer and talk to God personally. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Silence. What does that prayer mean to you this morning? Don't just recite it. Talk to God about it. For thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen.